So three, two, one, fine. Um, welcome everybody. This is week number eight of On Halacha. It's amazing what we've gotten so far. Yeah, Elle's rah, 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 while she's drinking her water. Okay. Um, this is a little bit of a departure from the other classes that we've done so far. Um, previous classes have spent a lot of time discussing particular issues. We spent like three weeks just now talking about uh, women in Minyan and women and leadership and, and uh, services. And last week we talked about homosexuality and halacha. Um, and I want to kind of take a departure from this like very intricate textual study that we've been doing and start thinking about something which is a little bit more abstract. Um, and that is the idea that there are genres of halacha and there are genres of Jewish writing at all. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why I think this is important. Um, but maybe one way to approach this is to kind of go from where we stopped last week. So last week um, we talked about halacha and homosexuality. We basically started with the assumption that all halachic texts up until the 20th century are hostile to homosexual sex, that they think it's a problem, be that as it may. Um, and, and so I should add, I should add to that that um, this, this would go along with a kind of uh, heteronormative halacha that like the assumption is all halacha texts um, are heteronormative in some way. Um, let's turn now to source number one, which I think presents somewhat of a different perspective on sexuality in Judaism. This is by a 14th century, um, pretty important rabbi named Colonimus Ben Colonimus of Arles. Um, and he wrote this poem and he says in the poem, oh, but had the artisan, that's God, the artisan, who made me, created me instead of fair woman. I, wish I, I wonder what it would be like if I was a woman. Today I would be wise and insightful. We would weave, my friends and I, and in the moonlight spin our yarn and tell our stories to one another from dusk till midnight. We tell of the events of our day, silly things, matters of no consequence, right? It still doesn't, it's not a different perspective on women. It's just that he's thinking about himself as a woman. But also I would grow very wise from spinning. And I would say, happy is she who knows how to work with combed flax and weave it into fine white linen. And at times in the way of women, I would lie down on the kitchen floor between the ovens, turn the coals, and taste the different dishes. On holidays, I would put on my best jewelry. I would beat on the drum, and my clapping hands would ring. And when I was ready, and the time was right, and an excellent youth would be my fortune. He would love me, place me on a pedestal, dress me in jewels of gold, earrings, bracelets, necklaces, and on the appointed day, in the season of joy when brides are wed, for seven days would the boy increase my delight and gladness. Now, this is a boy, not a man. Were I hungry, he would feed me well-kneaded bread. Were I, were I thirsty, he would quench me with light and dark wine. He would not chastise nor harshly treat me. In my sexual pleasure, he would not diminish. Every Shabbat and every new moon, his head he would rest upon my breast. The three husbandly duties he would fulfill, rations, raiment, and regular intimacy, and three wifely duties would I also fulfill, watching for menstrual blood, Shabbat candles, and bread. Okay. So this is slightly different from the text we've looked at this class so far, to be to understate it. Um, so what do you think this is about? Where does this text fit in to the conversations we've had so far? Um, what we've talked about, um, at least in passing, talked about um, men being the normative citizens of the Jewish social world, and that women are kind of peripheral to this. And here is a rabbi who says, you know, I kind of wish I was a woman. So what do you do with this? And this is written, like this is in print. It, it, it seems to be the same in the sense that there are just such clearly prescribed roles based on gender. That right. You can't, there's just no working around that. What's different is 
it does seem to emphasize women as like independent people with independent things that interest them as opposed to halachic texts which really seem like they have people and also women right, um, right. and it certainly plays up the the nice parts of what it means to be a woman and he can kind of actually get into that space somewhat and say like you know, you know <coughs> even assuming that men and women keep traditional roles like being a woman is not so bad like it's not the worst thing I, you know he probably still wakes up every morning and says like you know Shiloh Asani Isha but even so, he imagines, well, maybe a woman's not being so bad. I think that part of what he's imagining about being a woman that's not so bad is that life is simpler, right? <laughs> like he's kind of yearning to be in a be in a place where you don't actually have the stressful, um, I don't know, the stressful burdens that men have. And it's just, you know, you talk about silly things and you spin your yarn and whatever. Right, so being a woman's like, it's frivolous. Living in Bermuda, like you, you just have no you're relationship to the rest of the world, but like you're also not important to the rest of the world. Like you're just off doing something nice. Right, and you still have your obligations um, and the activities that you do. It's not like you do nothing, but um, but they're not stressful obligations. It right. seems. Okay, I think that's a good point. Right. So if you read it like that, this isn't. This is still not such a positive text. He's seeing like uh, being a woman as kind of taking a day off. Um, or something like that. Um, yeah. So unlike some of the sources that we've seen before, it also doesn't seem very prescriptive. I mean, it seems just like something that, like a, a, a thought that he has. It's not something that he's saying, oh, this is how it should be. Right. Or, so, or a law you should follow. Yeah. Um, so Marcel's point is the point that I kind of wanted to get to, which is to say that we've been looking at halakhic literature, and halakhic literature is not very positive towards women when it mentions them at all, like they're kind of peripheral characters. Um, certainly not positive towards homosexuality. Um, but there's more to Jewish literature than halakha. In fact, there's a lot more to Jewish literature than halakha. Um, and this poem is kind of just one piece of that, in, like the, the other part of Jewish literature, which is never gets talked about in religious schools, never gets discussed um, unless perhaps you are in the academy, but otherwise it is, just, it is just ignored. And I think it's important to talk about this, especially because today we're talking about the halachot around sexuality, in that if we're looking to find like positive images of like what healthy sexual relationships are gonna be like, we're not necessarily gonna find those in halacha. There are other places in Jewish uh, literature to look if you're going to find those positive models, and those are also part of Torah. Um, halacha, you know, in the same way that you, know, you don't look to um, Know, congressional legislation or say the Health Care Act that, they, that was passed by Obama to get a sense of like what the feelings are about health care and the ideals of health care in this country like that's just not the right document there are other places where people talk about like the notions of responsibility and government and care that are more important um, yeah I think what's also telling about this text is how deeply embedded halachot are within it even though it's not a halachic text like the um, the verse at the end that talks about the Husbandly duties and her duty and the and the wifely duties and for seven days would the boy increase my delight and gladness like that um, that those are still <coughs> even though this may be a more literary piece they're still woven within it. Halacha. So this is the other important element, which is that 
this is not kind of a column against halacha. This is not an attack on halacha. It acknowledges halacha, but it expands on it into different spheres of life. And so these things do work together. We'll see later on, like they don't always work exactly together, but in this text, certainly they do. Right, so, but you could have imagined a text that just seemed totally divorced from halacha. You know, sometimes I write about halakha, sometimes I write about real life. Right. And that's not what this is. This right. is very much influenced. Right. And you have those too. Like you have Jews who care, who talk about things like are just, you know, not connected to halakha whatsoever. There are a lot, I'll give you an example. Um, there are lots and lots of Jewish lexicons, descriptions of words. Sometimes they'll, you know, use words from Torah, but they're interested in like how the Hebrew language, how Hebrew grammar functions. Um, and actually what I want to do now is just kind of give you a sense of what the spectrum is of Jewish writing because we spend so, like an inordinate amount of time talking about halakhic text. I want to help you understand like, that there is more to this than that. Um, so we have halakha. So let's say we have halakhic codes. What else do we have? What other kinds of things do Jews write? We have poetry. We have lexicons, we said before. So lots and lots of songs, lots of songs. Right? So if you're going to look for, give you an example, like, so if you're looking for descriptions of like, how wonderful Shabbat is, you're more likely to find those in songs than you are in legal treatises which talk about all the things you can't do on Shabbat. And along the same lines, keynote, P.O.T. Sure. So all kinds of like, um, all kinds of poetic literature. Great. I would guess that halakha is not the only form of like non-narrative prose either. There's probably like philosophical writing. So lots of writings of Maimonides, there's, phil there's lots of philosophy, there's philosophy mixed with theology, there's theology, there's mysticism, which is an entire other branch of writing, which also kind of interfaces with halakha in its own strange ways. There are calendars. Jews love writing calendars from like from in the Middle Ages, especially. Um, there's some comedy, even, which we'll see in a second. Um, there are, is travel literature, which again interfaces, but is much can be much more descriptive. There's very little history. There's a lot of discussion why there's so little so little discussion of like Jewish history. Um, there's wisdom literature, which we can say is something different than halakha. Um, descriptions of how one should live life without actually saying like, you must do a certain thing, being more general. Um, there's midrash. There's midrash agadah, there's midrash halakha. Even within halakha, there's codes, um, but there are also kind of lists of commandments. Like there's a, the notion of like a sefer mitzvot, like it's just an enumeration of all 613 commandments. Very important, very pop popular um, genre. The most the, the, the book for which we have the most manuscripts in the Middle Ages is a book of mitzvot. There's like 120 uh, Ashkenazi manuscripts of this. Uh, the, um, it's the, um, oh shoot, which one is it? Uh, it's the Smak. We have autobiographical works. We have letters, lots and lots of letters, from the Geniza especially. Like, this is all part of it, and none of this ever gets talked about. I shouldn't say that, but it gets talked about very rarely. Um, and this is, the fact that this doesn't get talked, talked about, it makes it seem like, we're the ones who have like all these different parts of our lives that have to go together with halakha, and you know everyone else they just they just wrote halakha, but it's not actually that way. It's actually much more complicated than that. Um, so in talking about halakhic genres today, the first kind of genre question that I want to talk about is the difference between writing about Jewish ethics and Jewish morality in a halakhic vein using halakhic language, and writing about it in non-halakhic veins using all the different topics that I talked about just now. Um, and so this, I would say, is an example, the first text we've looked at is an example of what it would mean to like, talk about um, the halakhic landscape from the, from the uh, perspective of poetry. Um, source number two gives you, uh, I think, maybe a more simple example of 
halacha mixed with agadah, which is often his counterpart in the Gemara. And this is, I know, would have been more relevant a few weeks ago, but in source number two, so we have, uh, Rabbah said, Rabbah said, it is the duty of a man to mellow himself with wine on Purim until he cannot tell the difference between cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordechai. Now that's the fun part. Rabbah and Rav Zera joined together in a Purim feast. They became mellow. I love this translation. This is insane. And Rabbah rose and cut Rav Zera's throat. On the next day, he prayed on his behalf and revived him. Next year, he said, will your honor come and we will have the Purim feast together? He replied, a miracle does not take place on every occasion. Great. Um, so what's the source about? Why are these two, I, mean, I think it's clear which parts of the halacha and which parts of the agadah, but why are they juxtaposed? <coughs> and the agadah seems to be trying to mute the halacha. It's like, you're supposed to get really drunk, but don't get really drunk. Right, so you have this sense like, you know, here's the halacha, and this is what happens when it gets played out. Somebody kills somebody else. Um, also, don't get drunk to the point where you're not going to have anyone to have a feast, with, or you're not going to have anyone to have a pseudo. Great. And you can imagine that this is like an important rule to have. If, if you have legislation that says you, should, you must get drunk, it might be important to have some stories, some anecdotes people can relate to that describe what kinds of things happen when you get drunk. Um, I should say as well, um, Barry Wimpheimer, who um, is a professor at Northwestern and writes about this as like a, a good example of a mixture of halakha and agadah, actually says the story reinforces the fact that you are supposed to drink a lot because they do drink again next year, they just don't drink together. Um, so there's this, the, the, the last bit of the story suggests like actually they're going to do the same thing, they're just going to be more careful this time. Um, so it's a slightly different take on it. But either way, the point is the, the agadah here kind of supplements the halakhic aspect um, and gives you an insight into it that you wouldn't have had otherwise if you just had the halachic text. Um, this is pretty important, and this kind of leads into the second kind of genre that I want to talk about. Besides halachic and non-halachic ways of thinking about ethics and morality, within halacha itself, there are all kinds of ways that Jews write that actually don't get talked about a lot. And I think when we think about um, the halachot that revolve around sexuality, this is, it's particularly important to think about what kind of legislation do I expect to see about sexuality, how do I expect to see that enforced, if am I going to see it enforced at all? Um, and how does that relate to the way that it is described in halakhic literature? Um, so with that in mind, maybe a way to start out is to think, what are some categorizations of halakha we know? Like let's say you wanted to divide like all the mitzvot in the Torah into different blocks. What kind of blocks would you divide them up into? These are blocks that, some, some of these appear already in rabbinic literature. Ben Adam, Makam, Ben Adam, Great. Okay, so really simple one, that there are mitzvot that involve other people, there are mitzvot that involve kind of a relationship with God. Great. Great. Okay. So different um, levels of commandedness based on the source of the command. Positive commandments, right? uh, negative commandments. Um, so the rabbis already understand that there are different ways of thinking about what a mitzvah is and different way of, like there are different ways of describing it. Um, there's also rational commandments versus irrational commandments, chukim versus mishpatim. Um, this ends up being pretty important in, dis in trying to think about how much you can interrogate a particular command, how much you can think about uh, its implications or in what circumstances you might read around it. Um, these matter as well. There are complicated laws versus not so complicated laws, right? Like laws that, like, for example, don't kill is like a relatively simple law. Um, the law of dina de malchut de dina that the, um, 
I, I'm not even sure how it is how to uh, translate it, but something like the law of the country in which you are living is also the law for you. What law is that? Under what circumstances? What kind of government um, is somewhat more complicated? Um, and it kind of makes sense that this is so. Um, a, there's also, and I think this is an important category for today's discussion, public laws and private laws. There's some laws which happen in the public sphere and some laws which don't. Um, so what's an example of a law that happens in the public sphere? Something like Shabbat or Kashrut happens in the public sphere, happens around other people. Um, something that happens in the private sphere, which got talked about last week as well, is Nida. Uh, many of the rules of Nida, no one's ever going to know um, whether um, a woman is or is not following those rules. Um, so in thinking about the way halachot are described, it's important to keep in mind, like, well, where does this fall on all the various spectra that I just described? Um, and has the meaning of this halacha changed over time? These categories are in a way not fixed. Um, what is private in one century could be public in another one. Um, what is kind of a vague ethical command in one century could become much more particularized in another one. Um, and a, a good example of, uh, of a halacha, which has become ha much more halachized in the past uh, century or so, is the law of Lashon Hara. Um, if you think about like what the Torah says about Lashon Hara, it's very minimal. Um, so there are rules against slander, against being a rachil, a uh, talebearer. But there are not a lot of um, specifications about what exactly that means. And the specifications that there are, are all agada. It's not halacha. Um, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, there was an attempt by the Chavetz Chaim to take this ruling, for, and for various reasons which we can't get into, but to take this ruling and to give it the same kind of rigor that something like Shabbat or Kashrut has. Um, and so if you see in source number three, it's him kind of responding to his critics. He's given you all these different laws about Lashon Ara, when you can tell somebody something, you know, if you have three people in the room, then it's considered public and you can tell other, and they, those people can tell other people, but if it's not, you can't, what kind of subject matter? And so he, he comes under some critique um, about well, how do you know this is the case? Like, where are your halachic sources? So he says in number three, I entreat the agreeable reader that if he finds something that does not appear to him at first glance to be a requirement of law, but rather a stringency, or an expansion or abbreviation of language, he should not be quick to judge it to be an error, unless he has studied well the Be'er Mayim Chaim, and all the rules that are essential to this law. So, you know, I really have, I'm not giving all my sources here, but they exist. For if he is lacking one component rule of this law, he will not completely understand the law. For I have truly studied in depth each and every paragraph in this book, uh, skip the bracket, and I have done a thorough search so that it does not contradict any Talmudic source. So he, he is, is very clear about the fact that he is um, kind of collating all this material that comes from a variety of different sources. And in a way, the result is he has transformed um, Lashon Hara from being in this category of kind of vague uh, moral legislation to something that's very specific with very concrete rules. So the categorization itself is somewhat fluid. Um, there's another way of thinking about law that is also going to be important from this discussion. And for lack of better words, um, I've thought about this as clean versus messy laws. Um, clean laws are kashrut, for example, Shabbat, um, tefillah. These are laws where there are very um, well set out legislation. The rules are very well defined and also it's relatively simple to follow that legislation. Um, the distance between what's on the page and what people observe 
is not so far. And as well, when people kind of observe the law, they get this sense of like, I'm observing something that is very well-defined and like I'm observing it in a well-defined way. Um, Kashrut is not just like a vague thing that people observe, like they understand that it, is, it involves like quite a bit of detail. Um, circumcision for those people who know how to do this, such, do such things. Um, and also marriage and divorce laws, like there are very specific rules around this, um, as are the rules for Pesach, as we're coming up to Pesach. Like we understand that the rules for dealing with matzah are pretty intricate and it's worth following them to the letter. Um, messy laws, well, here's in light of the discussion in the other room, social justice is a really good example of a messy law. How um, employers and employees should treat each other, how neighbors should treat each other, how parents and children should treat each other. These are laws where it's much more difficult to say, you know, one must, you know, you know you, there is, here is a list of actions which you must do um, without any exception. Things are much more contingent on the circumstance, and I think this is, this is recognized by us as well. Um, one of the other important um, laws in this category, I think, is laws about sexuality. Um, and so kind of with that in mind, I want to get into the meat of the discussion, but are there any questions first before we go there? Okay. Um, Sorry. Uh, just something I was thinking about when you were talking about messy laws is um, maybe what those all have in common is that um, the best you can do is give a, the best rule you can use is a best practices rule. Um, and that's, that's something that kind of, um, that, that those all have in common. I don't know if it's just the ones that you listed, but yeah. So I think part of what we're going to do now is take a look at understanding that sex, for example, is a messy law. That human sexuality is by nature messy in all senses of the word. Um, how do the rabbis attempt to legislate it regardless? And I think that it's important to talk about this because when we think about, well, how do I relate to biblical and rabbinic legislation about sexuality, how do I relate to those rules? And if I am a rabbi and I want to kind of legislate a new kind of um, halachot of sex, how do I do it? Do I do it in the same way that I would legislate Shabbat? Uh, meaning like write out all the things you can and can't do just one by one, or do I go about it in some other way? Um, so that's what we're gonna get into now. Um, so the first verse I want you to look at is number five. Um, just before we go there, there, there is a kind of like, there's another way of, of talking about um, halachot of sexuality. Um, if you are interested um, in say very, the question of whether it is possible to find a rationale that allows for premarital sex, such things exist. Um, there's a number of issues that, um, you know, would block a single person from having sex with another single person. Um, can you think of any? What are some obstacles? Besides marriage itself, or? So, I mean, so outside of a marriage setting, right? So assuming it's not adultery, like assuming it's just like two single people, uh, what would the obstacles be? for two uh, single people to sleep together. In the case of opposite sex, Nita. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So Nita, for, so one issue is definitely Nita. Peruvu. Peruvu, right? So um, wasting semen in some way would be a problem, right? assuming that these two people are not trying to have children. Um, the halacha might also be worried about the pedigree of these children, if there are children, uh, if they're not married, which we'll see in a second, um, and also Shomer Nagia. 
um, which if I think the undergrads were in the room, they would have brought up first. Uh, <laughs> um, you also might ask, like, is this a marriage? Is it considered a marriage if uh, two people have sex, um, according to Mishnaic rules? So in recent years, because there are lots of unmarried Jews having sex, and some of them are even halakhically observant in other ways, there have been attempts to kind of rationalize this um, and find halakhic sources that get around this. Some of the popular ones, for example, is this notion of pilag shoot, that Judaism has a model of marriage, but it also has a model of concubinage. Um, the woman in, this, in the relationship um, is not a full wife, and so you can kind of understand uh, what these two people are doing as being a concubinage relationship, which, for one thing, it's a, it's a little bit offensive to the woman, because um, it is definitely not an equal partnership, the concubinage situation. Um, it's also presents this as kind of an emergency situation, which one of the things we talked about last week is that it's pre I think it's better if we kind of approach difficult halakhic questions as if they're not emergencies which we need to solve, but rather part of an overall system. There is a long article, if you're interested, by, uh, um, I'm not sure if he's a rabbi, but Professor Uri Zohar in Akhtamut from a few years ago, who kind of like sets out very carefully like an argument for um, premarital sex being allowed, if not preferable, but at least allowed. Um, with Nita, uh, of course. Um, okay, but I don't want to do that. I want to go along a different route, um, and that is to think: Well, how is how do how does the mission of the Gemara think about uh, the, this legislation? Um, and so, in source number five, you have like a source which I think, if you saw it to, from today's perspective, seems like it doesn't really fit in the picture. So we have it says in five, in the Mishnah Ketubot in Judea. One who dines, Sushita dines, at his future father-in-law's house without witnesses cannot later claim that his wife is not a virgin because he has secluded himself with her. Um, the point about saying this is in Judea is to say we in the Galilee, Rabbi Huda and Silos in the Galilee, we don't do it like this. We in the Galilee are much more careful. But in Judea, like, they're not careful like this. So this is a bit of shocking legislation, right? Because it suggests they're not interested in, like, are they sleeping together, are they not sleeping together? It's beyond that. It's saying... Assuming that they would sleep together, and that it is, they don't seem to think there's a problem um, directly with um, the, uh, the the prospective son-in-law being in the prospective father-in-law's house, secluded with the woman. They, they're all beyond that. We're really just talking about well, what does that mean for um, the rights of the husband to claim that she is a virgin? Um, so, what do you make of the source? How does this fit into your understanding of rhythmic sexuality? Does it fit in at all? I mean, it does seem to be acknowledging that at least some people, you know, at least the less reputable people might be having sex with someone they intend to marry before they're married. Great. At so, a minimum. Right? right. So one way of saying it is really it is kind of like censuring this. Um, but it's saying, well, assuming this is the case, here's what we do. Um, I would expect that there would be at least some mention of there being a problem with this, um, directly saying, like, this is a problem for these reasons. If it was a problem directly, it seems not to be the case. Right. Uh, it seems like the only problem that's being presented is the possibility of him later on saying that she was not a virgin. Right. And that's the only, that's the only issue, that's the only thing mm -hmm. that this text takes issue with in Great. that kind of situation. It reminds me of <clears throat> the mitzvah from the Torah about, I might get this wrong, but a man who claims his wife is an adulteress, but she's found to not be an adulteress, he can then never divorce her. Hmm. It's not saying, don't do that. 
it's saying here are the consequences in terms of the marital relationship to the husband. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So this is also, it's like, he can't then, I assume this is related to the ketubah, he can't then say, you know, I, the, the value of the ketubah is less because I'm not married a virgin because he did it. You know, it's right, right. not saying don't do it. It's just saying here are the consequences. Great. Okay. That's, okay. That's a good uh, analysis. The other part that you're bringing in there is that there's a kind of disincentive for the husband to make such a claim. Like in the biblical case, it's like you can claim this, but like there's a consequence for you, um, which I'm not sure is present here. Um, yeah. Um, either way, what the other, the other thing that I wanted to get out of this is in thinking about private and public law, this is a great source that thinks about sexuality in both a private and a public way. The private element, the rabbis seem not to care about so much. What they really care about is not are they having sex, but if they are having sex, what effect might that have on the woman's reputation, her family's reputation, the claim that the husband might make in public. Right? So they're, they're trying to play out in what way can this affect the public sphere. Um, and they're really only speaking towards the public sphere. Um, this comes across the same kind of division between the public and private sphere comes across in, this, in source number six, which you may have seen before is kind of also a strange source from uh, Thomas Bavli of Amot, Lamad Zayin Amad Bet. Rabbi Eliezer ben Yaakov says, behold, when a man has intercourse with many women, does not know which, uh, with which particular woman he has had intercourse. And similarly, when a woman with whom many men had intercourse does not know to which particular man her conception is due, the consequences are that a father will be marrying his daughter and a brother his sister, and the whole world will be filled with bastards. And concerning this, it was said, and the land became full of lewdness. Lewdness is zima. This is like the rabbinic nightmare. This is like the serious problem of, of incest. Um, so it spells it out. And Rabbah, he can answer you. It is this uh, that was meant, what might be the result? And so now we get into the fun part. More than that was said by Rabbi Lazar ben Yaakov, a man shall not marry a wife in one country and then proceed to marry one in another country, since their children might marry one another, and the result might be that a brother would marry a sister. By the way, this actually happened a lot. Um, Merchants would like live in Ashkenaz and like take a boat, spend six months in like Cairo, marry somebody else, and um, it was a problem. Um, so there was actually uh, rules about not granting merchants kind of um, exit visas, more or less, unless they divorce the wives beforehand. Um, but surely, this would not be the accepting rule for Rav when he happened to visit Dardashir. He used to announce, "Who will be mine for the day? Which woman? Which who wants to be the lucky woman?" So also Rav Nachman, whenever he happened to visit uh, Shekunzib, used to announce, who would be mine for the day? The rabbis came under a special category since they are well known. So it's okay for them to do this because rabbis are like rock stars and therefore like, they're gonna be like, you know, who had this, you, know, you know whose baby this is? This is Rav's baby or this is Rav Nachman's baby. So they're not gonna forget, there's not gonna be a problem of like, you know, of incest. Okay. The Talmud, however, seems to ignore the obvious point, which is like, these are rabbis, like, walking into the village and says, like, I'm here, um, you know, here's my hotel room number. Um, so why aren't they worried about this? Perhaps they're not worried about this because the rabbis are worried about sexuality in the public sphere. Again, in the private sphere, they're less concerned. Um, and in fact, it is also interesting that this story comes, this, this is kind of an anecdote that is told. There's no legislation saying like, you can or can't do this. It just says, this is what happened. Like, this is what rabbis did. Um, and they were only concerned about it to the effect that it affects the public sphere. Yeah. It, it seems that it, they're only concerned about incest here. 
So I mean, assuming there's like uh, contraceptives, or if you're talking about homosexual sex, or, or something that does not result in conception, mm -hmm. um, how would you extrapolate? Or paternity tests. Or paternity. <laughs> or, yeah, in paternity an era tests. of Mari Povich. <laughs> right. So I mean, it seems like the there's not like a solid ground for the for like being promiscuous. So that's but, another question, yeah. right? So like assuming that this is you know, reading this like you're reading this as a kind of code which says like you can only have sex with people to whom you're not married when there will not not be a paternity issue. Um, and then you and I can come along, as you say, in the era of Mori Povich and say, well, there's no longer any paternity issues because like there's DNA tests available and so what's the problem? So yes, you could go you could go down that road. What part of what I want to say today is actually I'm not sure that thinking about this material that kind of specifically atomistically is appropriate for this for this material. I think that kind of misses the broader points that the rabbis are trying to make in presenting this material as, as Agada in the first place. So if you're like looking for when is a good time to be promiscuous and when is not, the question today shouldn't just be a technical one of like, well, are there or are there not DNA tests, but like there might actually be other rules today about you know when it is a good idea to sleep with other people. Um, yeah. I mean, what I found fascinating about this text is the merchant situation seems to be prohibiting something that I thought was 100% acceptable in Judaism, mm. right? Right. So, like, I don't know about if Talmudic era, if they still, if men were still marrying multiple women. So, but certainly it was acknowledged as, like, right. part of Jewish law that that can happen. Yeah. It's saying nobody can't in this situation that seems to be out of nowhere. Yeah. So this could actually seem lot. to be concerned about incest rather than using incest as, like, a veil to cover other halakhic concerns. Right. Um, so polygamy is still an option. I mean, part of the difficulty is that whenever you say, whenever you talk about polygamy, most of the population is not polygamous. It's a small minority of the population that's polygamous whenever you have a polygamous Jewish society, or any society, just because of, I mean, ratios of men to women. That's just how it works. Um, but as well, in the Middle medieval period, what, even when um, polygamy is tolerated to a degree, this is one of the more difficult situations um, because it's not in it's not clear that this man has two wives. Right. It's not in a contained area. Right. That seems to be the issue. And so in a polygamous um, society where they're all kind of living in one house, then everyone kind of knows, okay, that's really my half-sister and I can't marry her. <laughs> um, okay. I mean, so just going back to your question again, the whole issue of like paternity being the main obstacle to um, to having sex with whoever you want seems a little bit difficult to relate to nowadays. Um, I think that's like something we definitely need to think about in these sources. There's lots of other halachot as well, like the notion that a woman has to wait a certain amount of time after she's divorced to remarry. Again, like because of questions of paternity. So like there's lots of areas of, of, of halacha where questions of paternity um, dictate activity. Um, yeah. Okay. Great. Um, if we can move on to another source. Um, which one did I want to do next? So I actually want to take you to, uh, well, we didn't do this before, so we'll do number source number seven next. Um, another way of thinking about public and private law, and yeah, Elle's already smiling because she likes the source a lot. I'm smiling because <laughs> he has a question. <laughs> <laughs> I'll ask in a few months. Okay. 
Um, so source number seven, again, deals with the question of public and private law in a way which is somewhat different, and again, humorous. And I think like the fact that there's humor in all these is, I think, not insignificant. So source number seven. It's a question, uh, the whole discussion is about um, should students get instruction from their teachers by following them into private places, like bathrooms and their marital bed. So it says, and so it has been taught, Rabbi Akiva said, once I went and after Rabbi Yoshua to a privy, and I learned from him three things. I learned that one does not sit east and west, but north and south. I learned that one evacuates, not standing but sitting. And I learned that it is proper to wipe from the left hand and not with the right. Great, now you know. Said Rabbi Nazir to them, did you dare to take such liberties with your master that you would follow him into the washroom? He replied, it was a matter of Torah and I was required to learn. I have to, it's Torah, what can I do about it? Understanding that it doesn't matter if it's a public or private Torah, I have to learn no matter what. And my rabbi is an exemplar even when he's in the washroom. It has been taught, but as I said, once I went in after Rabbi Akiva to a privy and I learned from him three things. I learned that one does not evacuate east and west, but north and south. I learned that one evacuates sitting and not standing. I also learned it was proper to wipe with the left hand and not the right, said Rabbi Judah to him. Did you dare to take such liberties with your master? He said, it was a matter of Torah and I was required to learn. Now the third case, Rabbi Gahana once went and hid under Rav's bed. He heard him chatting with his wife and joking and doing what he required, i.e. having sex. He said to him out loud while they're having sex, one would think that Abba's mouth had never sipped the dish before. Wow, you're having, you know, the way you're having sex suggests like, you know, you've never done this before that you, presumably you're, um, there's a lot of energy in it. He said to him, Kahana, are you here? Go out because it is rude. He replied, it is a matter of Torah and I are required to learn. So what do you do with this? <laughs> what do you do with the third part? What do you do with the whole source, the whole passage? <laughs> Aren't these things that you also could have asked them without following them there? Great. Right? Like, couldn't you ask yeah. um, just theoretically, um, like, what hand am I supposed to wipe with? Okay, so that's a great question. So why do you, th why do you think they didn't ask? Because it's a great story. It's a great story. Yeah, I mean, this seems to be almost as farcical as the, like, poor beheading, mm. which... Also, it's probably not how it actually happened. Ah, interesting. So, so this never actually happened. <clears throat> it might not. Yeah, happen. I want to suggest actually it did happen, and and part of the reason it's told in the form of a narrative is to say, um, here are these kind of like liminal cases of law where a student is trying to learn something which like maybe he shouldn't be learning in this way, but I'm going to tell you because like it's 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 illustrative of the problem. Um, and it could be that. You know, they just happened to be in there. They didn't necessarily follow them in order to learn that. But maybe the question is, well, why were you paying so much attention to that <laughs> um, while you happened to be there? Ah, so it's a kind of excuse more, me. Yeah, I mean, like that, that may be a more likely scenario, yeah. right? Like rather than like actually following your teacher into the bathroom that, you know, you're there at the same time and you just observe. Yeah. I, it doesn't I, work for the last. Right, it works for the first two. Yeah. I think in terms of... I mean, if you don't think about the privacy issue and what it actually they were they were actually doing, I think just watching somebody learning by watching and not you don't always know what questions to ask. Right. So it's not like oh, I could have just asked you how to do this, but I mean, if you sort of like not think about like the obvious invasion of privacy, it right. seems like sure why not? I want to learn by watching. And you might have not even known what there was to see, meaning um, as a student, if your teacher doesn't talk about um, halakha relating to 
sexuality, then you might not know if there are halachot, if, if there are halachot, what do they look like? Um, so it would be entirely out of your experience. Um, and so the only way is to kind of follow a person who you understand is embodying Torah and embodying halacha and see what that person does. But the rebuff, I think, is interesting, right? The rebuff and, and the Hebrew for it is rude is to love arach arat. It's not like derech eret. It's not, it's not appropriate. Like it's, it is rude, I guess, is, is a good way of thinking about it. Um, to suggest maybe there is something to learn, maybe there isn't something to learn. But either way, there's a bigger problem, which is um, a problem of appropriate behavior. Um, and the appropriate behavior might actually get in the way of the way one or do, does or does not want to learn. Um, if you kind of follow the uh, follow the last story to its halacha <coughs> conclusion, if there is a halacha conclusion, it's that like what happens in the bedroom is kind of off limits. Um, you don't get to observe it, um, which means that the only way to talk about it then is in abstract terms, is to legislate outside of any actual experience, which also does not seem to be what the rabbis are interested in doing, as we saw by the previous story that they're not really interested in telling us about the sexual practices of the rabbis. And so this is really kind of like off limits. And this is kind of like a weird thing to think about in terms of halacha in general, like that there would be an area of halacha which is more or less like halacha is not going there. Um, and people might have like their personal practices in the bedroom or they might have ways that they urinate, defecate, but this is not a place where people go. This is not a place where halacha generally dictates what you do. Um, other questions about this part, this source? They're great source. I mean, they're fun sources in the first place. Um, I think you get another take on this in the next source, which is also a source, um, in a way, about the perils of going in too deep with keeping tabs on other people, making sure they're not doing anything illicit. Um, by the way, it's again worth noting that these are all stories in the halachot. They're all written as stories. So we have in source number eight, so the story, and so we'll start uh, five lines from the bottom. Um, the story starts out with Abaya um, seeing a man and a woman. Actually, we'll start seven lines up. Um, so Abaya explained, against scholars more than anyone else, there is a problem of, of um, evil temptation. As was the case when Abaya heard a certain man saying to a woman, let us arise betimes and go on our way. So just, that's all, just that, that comment itself. I will, said Abaya, follow them in order to keep them away from transgression, because they're going to do something they shouldn't be doing when they're going on their way. And he followed them for three parasangs, which is a, several miles, across the meadows. When they parted company, he heard them say, our company is pleasant, the way is long, and basically, see you later, and they didn't do anything wrong. If it were I, said Abaya, I would not have restrained myself. And so he went and leaned in deep anguish against the doorpost when a certain old man came up to him and taught him the greater the man, the greater his evil inclination. So how do you understand the story? What's the moral of the story? Beyond the greater the man, the greater his evil inclination. That, the, <clears throat> that if they were to have um, engaged in sex, that would have been evil. So there's, there's definitely a problem there, and no one's denying that this would be problematic. But the story doesn't seem to center on the couple as much as it centers on Abaya, and whether right. Abaya's activity is appropriate. Um, and the suggestion seems to be, really, Abaya is the one at fault. 
And this old man who kind of comes up to him, you can kind of imagine is following Abaya the whole time. So Abaya is following the two people, and this old man's following Abaya, kind of making sure like he's doing something that that is appropriate or isn't appropriate. Um, <laughs> Abaya's problem is that um, he, first of all, imputes his own sexual desires onto the desires of these two other people, and second of all, he takes it up as his personal responsibility to follow them. And it seems to be both of these things are kind of denied. These are things that are not. Um, are not what one should do. So again, another example, here in a case of potentially problematic sexuality, of the rabbi saying, you know, leave, it, leave well enough alone. That's not an area where we should be going. Okay. Maybe you could read this as a general warning towards um, rabbinic authorities for not over-legislating, right? For not, um, for not trusting people enough to set their own boundaries and just... Um, just because they would find it beneficial to have someone following them along in the form of rabbinic um, prohibitions of some sort, that's not necessary. It's not necessary necessarily. Sure. And it's something that um, is perhaps rabbis worth understanding. I think some rabbis do understand this: that the way they observe halacha might look different from the way their congregants observe halacha. Um, perhaps not in all areas, but at least in some areas, and that there are different standards for different people. Um, and furthermore, that kind of, you don't inquire after everything. Great. So this is examples of agada um, being used um, for the sake of talking about sexual legislation. There are, however, other ways that the rabbis talk about um, sexual ethics. Um, and one of them is by intimidating people. So if you look in source number nine, we're going to move from talking about um, um, illicit uh, sex between two people to masturbation. So the central source for discussions of masturbation in halakha, source number nine, every hand that makes frequent examinations is, in the case of women, praiseworthy, meaning like it's good that women should be checking themselves to make sure they know whether they are bleeding or not. But in the case of men, it ought to be cut off. Men shouldn't be searching around down there. Um, now, I kind of want to stop here. It's a kind of funny way of phrasing it. But I think more than a funny way of phrasing it, it doesn't say, in the case of men, it is a sore. In the case of men, like, they owe 50 shekels to somebody. It says it should be cut off. Which suggests a kind of, like, we strongly disagree with this practice. Like, this is incredibly problematic, but not saying it is a sore. And so why do you think it wouldn't do that? Why do you think it doesn't phrase it as, this is a sore? A sore is... A sore is uh, forbidden. Because it's not enforceable, or so again. So part of this, is, it could be that this is a <coughs> private matter, and you can't enforce this. And if you create legislation, if you say like you you cannot do that, like you are breaking law every time you masturbate, then you are basically asking to have Jews constantly break halacha. Yeah, I mean, I think also the way that it's worded about women is not so prescriptive either. Right, it's very, um, I don't know, like it's not setting a standard. Like it's, it uses the same kind of formulation as like, kol hamar meshubach. Right, like kol hayadamar belivdok benashim meshubachat. It's like the same, um, uh, like the same kind of formulation that you can't really quantify. And, um, and so, it's not, so it's not saying that either is what you should do or what you, like what you must do or what you cannot do. Right. I think that's really interesting. 
Um, and I think you could see this source as kind of um, being a precedent to a, a lot of later understandings of the differences between male and female sexuality, which is that female sexual, like f women are much more wrapped up in their own sexuality, like they're much more sexual beings. Um, and so here as well, like women are kind of encouraged to um, be like searching around in their privates, whereas men are like hands off, literally hands off, um, and are understood to be like not asexual, but perhaps above their sexuality. Um, so I think that's de that could that's definitely a way of reading this. I mean, I also think that part of it is that there's actually a purpose for women to be searching, like if it's talking about the context of Nita, right? right? So then there actually, there's an objective there, whereas searching around for men, there is no objective. Right, and there's a kind it of also just no doesn't seem, objective. doesn't yeah. seem to acknowledge that sexual pleasure for women exists, honestly. Right. Like, why else would a woman's hand be down there? For sure. <laughs> Clearly, yeah. Nita, like, what? There are arguments, I have heard arguments, that suggest um, there is, in some of the way the rabbis talk about women kind of checking themselves, some suggestion of like, women should get to know their own bodies, especially before they get married. Um, I'm not sure, I don't know the material well enough to, to know whether that is or is not present in the material. Um, but even then, like, women getting to know their own bodies is really for the purposes of like, for the men, it's not for themselves. Mm -hmm. Okay. I want, is there a halacha around um, like semen being impure? So like the same way that blood is? It's not impure, but it has a purpose. Um, and like the purpose is procreation. Um, and so the, the issue, which comes from the Torah itself um, and descriptions in Breshit of like Onan kind of spilling his semen in order to get out of having a kid. Um, so the legislation comes out of that concern. But it's not it's not in itself impure, and kind of to go back to the beginning discussion of like different different genres of Jewish writing, there are Jewish writings by say Rav Moshe, Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, or Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, um, who's a Kabbalist, describes semen as actually being holy in some sense. Um, so you, yeah, but I, I wouldn't say that it's impure. It's actually because of its purity that you need to be so careful about it. Um, so the Mishnah probably, and again, this is the whole Mishnah Nida, it's about Nida, it's not about masturbation. Um, but this, the Gemara on this particular Mishnah kind of delves into the question. Um, and it's a long, very interesting um, chapter, um, but I've only brought you a small portion of it. So in source number 10, Rav said, Rav said, a man who willfully causes erection should be placed under the ban, put in Cherem. But why did he not say this is forbidden? which is our question, because the man merely incites his evil inclination against himself. Rabbi Ami, however, stated he is called a renegade because such is the art of the evil inclination. Today it incites man to do one thing wrong and tomorrow it incites him to worship idols and proceeds to worship them. So what's the issue? Masturbation is like a kind of gateway drug to idolatry. Um, so he is concerned about this as being directly problematic. Um, and you can kind of understand this as being like a difference of opinion about like, what is the harm of masturbation for society in general? Both of them seem to admit, however, um, that it is not just strictly forbidden. There is a question of in what sense this is um, problematic behavior without using strictly halakhic language. Um, however, we do have some like, pretty powerful um, fireworks in this. We see next, there are others who read Rabbi Yami said, 
He who excites himself by lustful thoughts will not be allowed to enter the division of the Holy One. Blessed be he. For it here it is written, was evil in the sight of the Lord, and elsewhere it is written, for thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, evil shall not sojourn with thee. Rabbi Eleazar stated, who are referred to in scripture, in the scriptural text, your hands are full of blood, those that commit masturbation with their hands. It was taught in the school of Rabbi Ishmael, thou shalt not commit Adultery implies thou shalt not practice masturbation, either with hand or with foot. I don't know about that one, whatever. <laughs> but either way, adultery is uh, equated with masturbation, um, and your hands full of blood, like an image of murder, um, makes some like serious criminal offense. Again, yeah. Do you have a question? Oh. No, I was just going to say that um, last week we talked about something that was um, sort of like a moral sin versus a religious sin. Yeah. And um, so I was thinking more like, premarital sex and masturbation is something, I mean, if it's consensual, of course, I mean, it's not something that's moral sin, um, but it could be considered a religious sin, depending on how you see halakha, mm. but, um, so equating it with murder seems a little extreme. Right, so what do you think it's about, like, why do you think it's using the language of murder and uh, adultery? I mean, a lot of this just seems to be emotional, like, even going back to the Mishnah, the hand has to be cut off, like, Yes, there's, an, there's, maybe they're not forbidding it because it's hard to forbid a private act, but cutting off a hand just seems like, you know, an emotional, angry reaction to something. Right. Um, and it's a reaction which, which gets across. Um, it's something that you can tell somebody, like, you know, your hand should be cut off for doing what you're doing. Um, or you can say, like, you know, you, you might as well be killing people, you might as well be committing adultery, like, for all this is worth. Um, and you get a sense in these sources as well, like, they're, they're, they're kind of getting into their element, the rabbis, like, there's this textual game now, like, you know, you're going to tell me what you think masturbation's like, I'll tell you what I think masturbation's like. Um, and kind of using their, um, their interpretive skills to associate masturbation with all these kinds of other horrible things. Um, but they still refrain from saying, like, it is a sort in itself. Um, and I think that's worth pointing out, that However much they want to decry this, they're also not willing to say, like, this is forbidden in itself. Um, now, where do we go from here? Um, as it is almost the end of the class. It's important to think about this primarily if we want to talk about what a sexual ethic, a halachic sexual ethic, should look like nowadays. Um, there are a few ways of going about creating such an ethic. Assuming, that, and, and the reason for creating such an ethic, of course, would be that we live in a society where men and women are, you know, um, interacting much more before marriage um, for, for, like, for a great deal of time, and so, like, temptations are run much higher and are much more difficult to, to avoid than they would be otherwise. So what do you do then if you want to do something about that? If you want, and if you want, in, in particular, young men and women to not feel like they are in a position of breaking law. So one part is just to acknowledge, like, the language here is different. It, it is halakha, but it is halakha in a different key than perhaps people are used to. And so to talk about, like, say, shomernagiyah as being like, shomernagiyah is asur. Is it daraita? Is it darabanan? I don't know, but, like, it's definitely just asur in the same way that, like, you know, carrying objects on Shabbat is asur, outside of an era. Um, speaking about it in that sense kind of uh, misses the point that the rabbis have always understood um, that sexuality is fluid, that it is often private, that it is messy, and as a result, they were careful about not over-legislating it um, because they want 
these rules to matter to people. They don't want them to just exist for the sake of existing. Um, the other part is that if you are thinking about, you know, what would it mean to write a new sexual ethic, the ethic is not going to look like Hilchot Shabbat. It's not going to have that same level of detail. It might involve Agadah of some sort. It might involve some kind of moral expression, but not necessarily a strictly legal one. Um, and that is what we should be looking towards if we're thinking about, like, well, what do I want to subscribe to? Um, I think this is worth thinking about because I think, like, um, a lot of young, young Jews end up with the perspective of, like, well, I either have to, like, control myself or, like, I'm out. Like, I, I'm out of halakha, and that's it, um, because halakha abides by these certain rules. When in actuality, um, there is some more flexibility to the rules than there, than there is um, in other areas of legislation. Um, and the result of that is that when, you know, when rabbis come up with their legislation, they're looking towards not, say, abolishing all these rules, not saying, like, you know, Shemitah is out and, like, premarital sex is in and, like, and just getting rid of it all um, using kind of technical means, but actually, like, appreciating the fact that this is dealing with um, um, issues that are very complicated, very uh, dynamic, and to kind of write about it uh, accordingly. Okay. Sure. 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 Sure.